It's the Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated G for general audience. Sonic Speaks. Hello, friends. I'm back with one more interview about the great CBC nightmarish radio drama from the 80s, Nightfall. Our sixth and final interview is with Neil Marsh. And without gilding the lily too much, I would like to say you are in for a great and rare treat. Looking back, there have been a lot of unexpected moments in these interviews. When I discovered that my love for audio drama is partially due to Chris Cutras bringing over The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and unwittingly giving it to all Canadians to hear. When I realized with surprise that John Ballantyne and Kevin Hartnell not only know great radio drama, but are super fans of it. Getting to talk to one of my favorite actresses, Elva May Hoover, and to get an inside look on her work in deepening Canadiana from stage to screen to the airwaves. Talking to Bill Gray and getting his candid look at behind the scenes where he was fighting the good fight for quality in both Nightfall and Vanishing Point. Feeling a writer's kinship with the award-winning Tim Wynne-Jones. You know, I began this voyage years ago wanting to interview Chris Wiggins, who I loved in his radio and television roles since I was a kid. But for whatever reason, I was just too late to have that pleasure. Even though he settled in my hometown of Fergus. But tonight, it all comes back home when I had the next best thing. So without further ado, here's my interview with Neil Marsh. He is a longtime fan of radio drama and a creator and writer of audio drama and an absolute fan of the classic CBC radio series Nightfall. I'm pleased to sit down today with Neil Marsh. Niels, thanks so much for agreeing to do this interview with me today. You're very welcome. Thank you for asking. And before I get started, I just need to apologize. In the past, you created and executively produced The Mask of Inanna, and I had seen it, and automatically, because I was a Firefly fan and I had done Firefly fan fiction, I was reading in my head Inara, and so I didn't, <laughs> I thought, I'll listen to this later on, but I can't play it on the Sonic Society. And I would really like you to think about the possibility of me being able to feature The Mask of Inanna on the Sonic Society and maybe even through the Mutual Audio Network, the entire series. But don't answer that now. That's something we can talk off mic. <laughs> so I apologize okay. for not knowing about this, but I can tell you for a fact that my buddy, my, my brother and, and producer, Lothar Tuppen, his show, The Degazian, is certainly reflective of some of the stuff that he listened to in The Mask of Anana. It gave him ideas. And he had like a, I was talking to him on Skype and you could just hear a little tear in his eye when I mentioned the oh. show that you guys had done. And you're the Post Meridian Players, true, right? Yes, that was the group that I was with at the time. Yeah, I remember many of the stuff that you guys had done, and that was fantastic. So thank you thank for you. that, and thank I apologize much. profusely. So. <laughs> it happens. It's okay. So we can talk about your work with uh, audio drama in a bit, but I'd like to start off with how did you get the experience? How did you get first connected to the idea of radio drama? How old were you when you started? Oh, uh, I want to say 
Yeah, I want to say eight. My brother had a couple of LPs of Inner Sanctum episodes right. that we used to listen to. And I loved the idea, but I really, you know, I didn't really know, like, at the time, because we're talking the uh, early uh, <laughs> 70s, uh, <laughs> I didn't really know anything about it. And I didn't really, like, follow up on anything. And, of course, direct, you know, we didn't have the internet, and direct availability was you know, mail order, which I, I, I know, I know now, but didn't really know at the time. I did skits and things when I was in college, but I never tried to really execute my first radio drama until the early 2000s. I don't know if you're familiar with a show that ran in the, in the first decade called After Hell. Oh, absolutely. Joe Medina and I created After Hell. Oh, you were with uh, Joe and that and Jamie Lawson and, and yeah. Yep. Awesome. Yep. And the idea of After Hell in that it was an anthology series set after the, you know, basically as the world was descending into apocalypse that, you know, again, I come up with the idea and, you know, Joe ran with it. The second episode, uh, Dying on Stage, was written by my a local friend here in Boston, actor, improv, LARPer guy named uh, Brian Rust. And I didn't really know him at the time. And he just sent me the script and I'm like, wow, this seems just like an After Hell episode. And I sent it to Joe and Joe's like, this is really cool. So he, he produced them all on his end. I didn't have a lot to do with it after that point, except I took some of my people into the studio to record some of the background bits for dying on stage, like the, the radio broadcasts and stuff. That was a fun show. It was great. I haven't spoken to Joe in many, many, many years, but Me neither. he was a very supportive, talented guy. But anyway, that was like the first chance I had to do anything. And it was right around that time that I started thinking about putting together a group to do live shows. My wife and her sister uh, had opened a community theater in 2004. Well, our first show was 2004. Mm. And I thought, okay, this would be a good opportunity because I'm going to meet all these actors. And I talked it up and there were a lot of people who were interested. And a year later, Halloween of 2005, I put together a little fundraiser for a friend who was making a film. And part of the fundraiser was a production of Arch Obler's Chicken Heart. <laughs> That's it's a, classic. a classic. And it's, and this was a mix like the, the, this was the original script and what's out there right now is just a remake from 1965 from an album that Obler did called Drop Dead, where he oh, used okay. like eight to 10 minute segments from his classic episodes. The Dark is in there, the one with the mist that turns people inside yes. out and oxychloride X. And then, of course, Chicken Heart, which is like the last seven or eight minutes of the script when the heart's really doing its thing. And so right. I, uh, I got the original script from Martin Graham, who had a huge collection. And so we used that. And then we took the bit from Drop Dead because I felt it was more exciting. It's not, you know, like 90% the same as the original script, but, you know, Obler had a chance to touch it up. And of course, the, the Drop Dead version has Hans Conried in it, which you can't beat. When it comes to radio drama, right. you can't beat having Hans Conried in something. So we, yeah, For so we sure. did a live production of it, complete with a tub full of jello. <laughs> and it went really well. And everybody was really happy with it. So the next year, we started doing trilogies for Halloween. Nightfall played a big part in our first four shows. We did episodes of Nightfall in some of our shows. I'd gotten permission from Len Peterson for before he passed away to do any of his episodes. And then John Douglas, who had died in 91, his sister gave me permission to do his shows. Wow. So, like, so we did, the first show we did was The Monkey's Paw and The Maid's Bell. And then mm -hmm. the next year, it was The Stone Ship and Carmilla. Uh, the next right. year, we did the uh, Peterson's The Telltale Heart, which is one of the best interpretations 
of that story I have ever heard. I just re-listened to it today. <laughs> it's, it's like if Poe were going to have elaborated, I feel like that's what he would have done mm-hmm. uh, with it. And beautifully acted, too. Oh, yeah. Those folks were just amazing in that one. And it's, again, so frightening in its way. And when we reenacted like the murder scene, we were used the heartbeat in the background was a, a conga drum with a, a towel over the top underneath the Foley table so no one could see it with a microphone oh. <laughs> at the base of it. And it's just, it was so creepy. And see, the next year we didn't do anything with Nightfall. The year after that, I got permission from Roy Sallows to do Oh, What Happened to Hutchings. That is another one that I loved. And I think that's the last of the Nightfalls that we did. We started moving in a different direction at that point. The one thing was that we didn't get good recordings of The Maid's Bell and The Monkey's Paw for various reasons. I took those into the studio in 2010, and I, I have all of the dialogue sitting on a hard drive somewhere that I just have never gotten around to <laughs> editing the poor thing. Wow. Um, but there are recordings of The Stone Ship and Telltale Heart and Carmilla uh, out there. I was very proud of my group, especially on uh, the stone ship. It was just so much fun to have a big tub of water and do all of the boat sounds and the big, you know, big slabs of stone to recreate the, the stone sailors from the ship. And just, it was so much fun. I really enjoyed doing that. Sounds incredible. Was- but you didn't really explain how you found out about Nightfall at this point. Were you searching for content? Actually, so the, around the time I was trying to come up with After Hell, an anthology show that Joe, you know, later turned into to After Hell. I was on an IRC channel in those days for Doctor Who, and there was a guy on there who went by the, the handle of Static Shadow, and we used to talk about different things. And one day he said, hey, have you ever heard of Nightfall? This was 2001, 2002, maybe? And I said, no. And he said, well, take a listen to this. And he sent me a link to Where Do We Go From Here, which mm-hmm. is the one about the guy who's in the car accident that they think he's dead, and we're hearing his right. internal narration. Oh. Gosh, so that was my first one. And the ending of that one is what hooked me. You know, it's like you think yep. the guy has been saved at the, at the last mm-hmm. minute. And it's like, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> 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 and I was obsessed at that point. And I went online and found everything I could. I admit I resorted to eBay where people were selling, you know, MP3 CDs of the series, the well-known, really awful quality, low-resolution yep. recordings. <laughs> and I just kept listening and listening. I'd put it on shuffle so that I would never know what was coming up. And I'd be like, oh, I haven't heard this one. And I just, I was so obsessed with this show. And I think in part, it was because it wasn't, for the most part, its standard style was not over the top. And it was right. so many stories about people, ordinary people in ordinary situations or things that seem like you know, ordinary situations that become very extraordinary situations. I think especially of the repossession where it just starts oh. out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I, I love, I know. I love that kind of reaction to that show. Oh yeah. And but uh, I even thought something like the contract. Yes. Beautifully written. And it could have been an Alfred Hitchcock presents kind Absolutely. of story. It doesn't have a, a supernatural element to it. And yet it's just marvelous. It kept you going all the way through. I've often had wanted to put together a list of different episodes. Like it's, even though I think it only happened twice, it felt like it was becoming a habit that in the show <laughs> that people's hands would get chopped off. Hands you know, off, and or was it hands off? Is that it was, it's it's hands off, and yep. they bite. 
They bite. Yes, yeah. of course. Right. I forgot about that one. <laughs> yep. And one of the things was I had never thought about doing was to kind of make a list of episodes that have no paranormal supernatural element to them that are still like one of my favorite episodes is The Cruel Husband. Yes. David Calderisi is so... Uh, he just conveys that sadness, that regret. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no, there's, there's no supernatural element to it, but boy, that husband was a real bleep, you know, yes. bleep me out, but he was, you know... But yeah, there's just so many like that that they managed to still make really, really creepy. One that stands out the most for me is uh, Harris and the Mayor. And I think that was mostly done because Bill Howell and Stan Rogers were such good friends. And before Nightfall, they had done a show together with Elba May Hoover called The Sisters. Yes. Uh, There's a a CD out there called Poetic Justice, which has Harris and the Mayor, the song is a standalone and The Sisters on it. And if you want a good example of Elba May Hoover's dramatic acting, mm-hmm. ooh, that one is so... She exciting. does mention that show in our interview, which mm-hmm. was exciting because she says, that, do you know who Stan Rogers is? And I don't know if there's a Canadian around my age who would ever <laughs> say that they didn't. He was that much of an effect. Yep. And what a storyteller. Uh, yeah, so that's cool. I don't know. Harris and the Mayor. I haven't heard that one, so I'll have to go looking for it. It's based on a song he had written. It's actually, like, from my understanding, was pretty obscure. One of the sort of just sidetracks on one of his albums where there's all these others that everybody talks about. And it's entirely a human drama. But Excellent. they did it for Easter, 82. 82. 82. And it's one of those things I've always wanted to do, which is to, to do a play centered around a song. And where your story is kind of telling the story of the song, and you weave the song in and out. And so... That one gave me an idea for something I'm still working on, would love to do, is dramatizing a story that uses the song, The Cat Came Back. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I had the story in my head. I'm not really up to writing the way I used to be, but so I tap one of my writer friends to do it. But that was the sort of thing that would be done live that would be fantastic. But yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of shows in there that are entirely human drama that don't have supernatural elements, but the supernatural stuff is really what makes Nightfall stand out. For sure. And the immersive nature of Nightfall as a radio drama is different than some sort of radio dramas that are presentational in their nature. And I think that's what keeps it contemporary. People really feel what's going on in the same way as you would really get into a really well done horror movie where, you know, you're just almost petrified to move at times Mm. (laughs) because the emotions are so there. You said you were obsessed with Nightfall. The story is that you were considering writing a book about it at one point. When I realized just, you know, for the heck of it, I just did some searches online for names and realized that a lot of people involved in the show were still around. And I, you know, initially just kind of reached out to Bill Howell because I just wanted to talk to him about. Mm -hmm. And when I realized how much information was actually out there in terms of like people I could talk to and as well as um, data from like the like, I forget the name of the guy who created the who, who took the broadcast log, put it online years and years and years and years ago. But that was like instrumental for me to have that and doing my work. And I just I thought I I want to do a book about this show because it's so fascinating and shows like this have background story. I mean, all these, all shows have fun background stories, but I don't know. It seemed to me like this was 
obscure enough that I wouldn't have to worry about competing with anyone who's writing the definitive Nightfall book. But eventually it, it morphed from a book into a website. As we moved into the mid-2000s, I realized that it just would be easier to do it that way because I could readily make changes or adjustments or and I could bring people in to help, like writing the story synopses and things like that. It didn't ever quite work that way. And about 2006, I abandoned the project in part because I was heavily now into my live radio drama troupe. And I revamped the website in like 2012, which is what's currently up there. About a year ago, I turned over all of my research materials to uh, John Scott Ballantyne and Kevin Hartnell. So they have them all now. I hope that they'll be able to do more with it. But I pulled together so much information. At the time, I think around 2003, I was corresponding with, and the name escapes me, but the guy who was the historian and coordinator for NPR Playhouse. The show had gone off the air like in 2001, but he had all the archives. And he sent me a lot of material, publicity stuff, kind of some of the contract information and all the, what I think are called the DAC warnings that are like, when they did the repossession, they had to put out a content right. warning and all that. And he also connected me with a guy named Bob Molesky, who was the producer uh, back when Nightfall was on. And one of the things in that packet of stuff that this guy had sent me was uh, letters between Bill Howell and, and Bob uh, Molesky about wow. how they were going to arrange the NPR thing. And that's what I was talking about earlier was that when NPR Playhouse ran 39 episodes of Nightfall over two years, it was an exchange for Star Wars. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's how they, uh, I could be wrong because it's been a while, but I'm pretty certain that was the thing that it was the first time any CBC and any American broadcaster had exchanged programs. It was the first time a CBC show had ever aired on a U.S. network or station. And it was very interesting to read that. And I don't know what you've seen of it, but Nightfall was, except for Star Wars, Nightfall was the most successful show, the most uh, highest rated show to air on NPR Playhouse. I had no idea. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. It's really just amazing. It turned out, the little side story is it turned out that Bob Molesky lives in Massachusetts. I, I live mm. in Boston and he lives out west of here. And he said, why don't you come visit me? Sometimes. So we went out to Shelburne Falls and visited, and he gave me framed the lobby poster for Nightfall from when they had it on the air. They had, they had a the complete with the logo and it was like, it's my prized. I'm looking wow. at, I'm looking at it right now. It's my prize of my collection is this lobby poster that Bob gave me. That's fantastic. <laughs> So did you guys also end up getting Vanishing Point, which is kind of like a sister show that happened slightly afterwards? I don't believe so. NPR Playhouse, I could be wrong about that. And I may be because I, I believe there were a number of episodes of ZBS stuff that aired Fourth Tower of Inverness and, the, and Ruby the Galactic Gumshoe and yep. Jack Flanders. ZBS and CBC with uh, Bill Lane producing did a show out of, I think it was Montreal. And of course, I can't remember the name of it, but it was about a chef who who basically ends up being a detective. You know, it's just all these mysteries coming along that he has to deal with. But it's a great show. I remember hearing it ages ago. But that was marketed both by ZBS and aired on, on CBC. And I'm not sure whether that ever made it to NPR Playhouse. I'm sure there's a log out there of, of what aired on, on the Playhouse. But that was an interesting conversation with uh, Bill Lane 
For those listening who don't know, Bill Lane wrote one episode of Nightfall, The Old Post Road, I think it's called, and then it became a producer after that and produced quite a number of Nightfall episodes and then created Vanishing Point and produced a ton of those. If you name the five people that were most influential in Nightfall, Bill Lane is definitely on that list. For sure. When you were doing your research and such, did you talk to a lot of the actors that were involved in Nightfall as well? It was interesting, like, array of who I could find. I didn't actually encounter Elva May Hoover until after I was mostly done with, you know, had, had mostly abandoned the project and found her on Facebook. You know, so I, I never really interviewed her about it, though, you know, in our conversations, she told me a, about her daughter, Gemma Files, who is a horror writer who was influenced by Nightfall because she's, you know, listening to her mommy's episodes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, how old was she when <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking this, the same and thing? I'm like, knowing what she writes, I'm like, yeah, this explains a lot. But the only actors I really spoke to at the time were Brian Taylor who was in four episodes out of Edmonton under Laurie Seligman's direction. And he right. wrote uh, one of my favorites, which is uh, After Sunset. Yes. Beautiful. Show. Oh, I yes. love that episode. I haven't spoken to him in quite a long time, but I did a full interview with him. And in my data, in my research, After Sunset is one of only two episodes that has a fully written synopsis. But he was a very interesting person to talk to. I sent him interview questions that he filled out and sent back as opposed to doing a phone thing. The only other actor I really interacted with was Chris Wiggins. Oh, no. My heart's skipping a beat. Yep. He's the fish that got away from me. Yeah. Yeah. He, I believe he passed away four, four or five years ago. That's right. Yeah. Um, but the, it's the interesting thing was I found his number in the phone book, essentially. <laughs> and I called him and I, I used my standard opening line, which was, you know, my name is Neil Marsh. I'm calling from Boston. I'm doing research on a CBC radio series you were involved in called Nightfall. And he didn't remember it. Oh, wow. And well, the thing is, is that he was involved in over 1,200 productions. Yep. And the only ones that he really seemed to remember were the ones where he was a regular, like Johnny Chase. Yes, he was the AI in Johnny yep. Chase. Yep. <laughs> and the, the interesting thing was when I was listening to Nightfall episodes, and I think the first one I heard with him in it was The Monkey's Paw, I thought, mm -hmm. gosh, that voice sounds so familiar. And after a while, I was like, wait a minute, that's the guy who plays Uncle Jack. On Friday the 13th, the series, or That's in Canada right. as Friday's Curse. And so, you know, Frank Mancuso, who produces the Friday the 13th movies, he uh, was involved in, in doing that. Mm. And um, I just thought that voice is unmistakable. You just, you, if you've ever heard it in your life more than a couple times, you will always remember, even if you can't Absolutely. remember who to connect it to. I remember him first in Swiss Family Robinson. Oh, right. When I was a young kid and he was the father of the family. Oh, my God. And that was a Canadian production I'd as well. I'd completely forgotten about that. It was so pleasant to talk to. I, it was like you're meeting a guy who immediately becomes your uncle. He said, do you think you'd ever come to Canada? And I said, well, I'm actually planning a research trip. And this was the summer of 2004. And he said, well, let me know when you're coming. And so my wife and I drove up to Toronto and I, I had appointments with Len Peterson and Steve Mills, who was a producer. He did Buried Alive and The uh, right. Devil's Backbone and a couple mm -hmm. of others. And I also chatted. Oh, I met Larry Gaynor, who wrote uh, the Brides of Oliveira. Uh, <laughs> and I went to CBC and actually like basically photocopied everything they had in their library and archive, the, the archive at CBC. So much of right. the material from those days is in the storage facilities, which would cost lots of money to actually get people to dig through things. Right. And there were all these 
licensing and royalty issues that would have been involved. So I never got to that point. But when we arrived, I called Chris and said, you know, we're in Toronto. And he says, why don't you come out to Fergus tomorrow? (laughs) So we drove out there and my friend Eric, whose girlfriend's house we were staying at, was like, would you mind if I came along? He had known who Chris was and really enjoyed him as an actor. So we drove out to Fergus. It's such a quaint little town. It's just a little bit of Scotland in the middle of Ontario. So we drove out there and the address he gave us, this was, of course, before GPS. I don't know how we ever got along without GPS, but he was living in an old Baptist church that had been converted to a house. And we get up to the door and he opens the door. And he stares at us and he's got two Dobermans and he looks down at them, looks at us and points to the dog, points to us and says to the dogs, kill. <laughs> oh, no. And the, and the dogs looked at him like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so we go in and chat for a bit. And he had asked me if I would bring him recordings of the nine episodes he was in. So I handed oh, the tapes off to him and he said, let's go to lunch. So we went to a pub. Don't remember the name of him, where I had the probably the best fish and chips ever. And he sat there for two hours and regaled us with all of the accents that he, well, a portion of the accents he can do. He went up and down the British Isles and knew all his different accents and was telling us about the 1200, you know, radio plays he had been in. And we talked a little bit about actors he'd worked with. I admit, watching Friday the 13th, I had a huge crush on Roby, the redhead. For sure. Yeah, who played the, the niece. I was talking about how, you know, she kind of disappeared after that. And he still met her occasionally. Uh, I mentioned because she was in, I think, the repossession. She was Stroud's wife, Mary Peary. And he had said that it's very sad about Mary, that she'd had a stroke and that she desperately wanted to get back to acting. But she felt she could do it. And the doctors were like, there's no way. And he just felt that was very sad because she was so good and he'd worked with her so often. Right. And then he paid for lunch. He would not hear of it, of us paying wow. for lunch. Just a generous, fun, oh, you know, one of those people that I would love to have known for a lot longer. And he told us at the time that he had just done a, a movie, is 2004, it was a movie called Our Fathers, which was about the priest scandal here in Boston, the pedophilia cases. And he right. played one of the bishops, I think, of the church. But a few days, maybe a week later, I got an email from him thanking me for bringing him those recordings. Because it gave him a chance to be with people that he cared about who were not there anymore. Um, and that might have been the biggest reward of my work on that show was to hear that I had helped that, helped him with that. Wow. Yeah. But as, in terms of how actors go, my memory is that really it was just Chris and Brian Taylor. John Stalker was one that I could not track. Well, he'd be a great catch oh, he was yeah. in so I, many yeah, episodes, he's on facebook sure. but i don't know i would think his best memory of nightfall was the repossession i, I can't imagine it's not but i i don't know oh, for sure he would be great to talk to and, and he's also well known in anime circles he's one of the original voices original dubbed voices on the sailor moon series the old one which is actually funny because i had some friends who went to anime boston a couple of years ago we're talking about Sailor Moon, I said, yeah, there's an actor, a Canadian actor I know who I really enjoy, who I know did some voices for that. You know, his name is John Stalker. And they're like, oh, he's there. He's there this year. And I'm like, what? Uh, and of course, it turned out he had been there Saturday and, and this, you know, Sunday was the next day. So I was like, well, crud. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are other actors on Facebook that I'm friends with, like Lynn Derrigan. So she was the siren in Welcome to Homerville. And she was... Wow. She was the writer's wife 
a widow in the Book of Hell, the Spanish woman. She said that right. that was a lot of what she was called in for. Were at was accent work. I'm not friended to her, I don't think, but Elva May is uh, Jane Eastwood, who was in I think All Nighter, which is one of the creepiest ones. Yes, and Mr. D'Agostino, I believe, which is another. Yeah, I haven't heard that one yet. Yeah, so yeah, not many of the actors. A lot of them, you know, of course, were also like, I would love to have talked to Steve Ferry. Uh, not Steve. Wow, my name is, yes, but he was the guy who was also in Midnight Cab. There's two Ferry. There's David, Paul Ferry David and David Ferry. Ferry right. The, David Ferry. Yeah. He was out of Calgary too, wasn't he? Right, because he Some was in stuff. He was in The Porchlight. So that would make sense. With Heather Lee McCallum. Yep, she was the other one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Written and produced by Bill Gray. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Which is in that interview <laughs> that we talked about with together. Uh, he and Bill, I had a conversation about the porch lights. So, yeah. Bill was one of the earliest people I talked to. I mean, of course, Gerald in the porch light. Of course, I wanted to talk to him. What a joy to talk to him. It was really, he, yeah. He has all kinds of energy. Like, it's fantastic. Still got so much energy yep. towards his writing. And he's working on a novel right now. Yep. Too. Actually, he's, actually, he sent me a copy to playtest, as it were. I cannot think of the word. My aphasia is mm -hmm. really bad during this whole epidemic thing. <laughs> Certainly. Um, I haven't started it yet, but he I did ask me to read it and give my thoughts. So, um, you know, when I started talking to him, he was so surprised that somebody knew about his Nightfall episodes. And <laughs> when I told him that The Porch Light is one of the most popular, often cited as the creepiest episode, save The Repossession. He was completely stunned, I think, if my memory serves. Because then he told me the story about how, I'll leave it to him to, to tell it, but he told <laughs> me that story and I was like, it's funny that that's what happened and it turns out to become an incredibly popular episode. And another interesting thing about Bill was that he said, have you heard my Vanishing Point episode? And I said, no. And he said, he told me about Cage of Light. Cage of Light, And yes. I went and listened to it. And I, I loved that story. I have to check because I want to say that it was Neil Denard, but I'm not sure. I get so many of them mixed up. But uh, no, actually, that was produced in Vancouver. So it had to be somebody else. Probably Don. It was either Don Kowalczuk or... No, Giuliani. I think Don Kowalczuk was was the executive producer for it too. Right, so, and John Giuliani yeah. is the other one I'm thinking. Yes, um, and I wanted to do something with Cage of Light, and for ten years I kept coming back to it. And several years ago, I decided. I mean, doing live radio drama is one thing, but I'm I'm no longer involved with my my troupe. Uh, they went off in a different direction from my vision, which you know happens, and. What I thought would be cool was, well, a, a local theater company a few years earlier had done staged productions of three episodes of X minus one. And I thought it would be an interesting challenge because I think there should be more stage sci-fi plays to do sure. Cage of Light on stage. So I got Bill's permission to adapt it. And what I ended up doing was doing a staged reading of the adapted script at a local sci-fi convention. Mm -hmm. And then also publicly because, you know, people who couldn't get to the convention uh, could see it. And we filmed it and I sent the, the link to Bill and he was just thrilled with it. I did my best to kind of like not reproduce, but duplicate the feel of the soundtrack. This is right. the one that Barry Truax uh, yes. did, uh, the electronic score. All the sound effects as well were all electronic. I spent weeks creating all the different effects and even processing the voice of the alien in a way that's different from how it's processed on the show. But I'm hoping someday I will eventually actually be able to stage it uh, 
as part of a, a trilogy that I'm doing. But it was so much fun. I loved that story and I loved my cast. And I just, I think Bill was so thrilled that somebody wants to do that. And now the dentist has been done by Campfire Radio Theaters. Yeah, and now sure. they're going to be doing or have been doing Gerald. Yes, uh, I, they're still in production for that. Yeah, for sure. I remember Kevin telling me that finding a child actor is like, the hardest thing. You know, you know, traditionally, especially on CBC, children are usually done by uh, adult women. Yes. But for whatever reason, Bill Howell wanted a child to play Gerald. He talks about that in the interview as well. He, he said he never felt that adult women sold children's voices as effectively as real kids. Yeah. And I think he's right to yeah. a certain degree. Danny Hyam was amazing in that part. He didn't have a very long career, but I would love to have had a chance to talk to him and let him know he was actually iconic <laughs> in certain mm -hmm. circles. But yeah, finding a kid who can play that part, convey like being this unrealizingly evil person, using the whole it's okay, they're going to heaven, right, Dad? Yes, that was oh. the, the excuse. And the way he responded, it was very matter-of-fact. He was going to die anyway, right? Yeah. He didn't have much longer to live, so that was okay. He's gone to heaven. It's probably a good thing, right, Dad? And that, when <laughs> I was back earlier, I was talking about my list of commonalities in some episodes, like mm. the three episodes off the top of my head that I can think of involving children, is Gerald, Teddy, and In the Arms of Jesus. And I was like, okay, all right, that's just, <laughs> but it's a great chance to, to find a challenge for an actor and to have an actual child play Gerald, I think. For yeah. sure. Can you encapsulate after doing all your research, what it is that makes Nightfall such an iconic series? I think certainly for me, having Nightfall be my first Canadian radio drama was that it just stood out as different. I felt the dialogue was more conversational, more natural. The writing, I mean, of course, like with any show, the writing was, was varied in quality. And, you know, as you point out with The Porchlight, the writing can be not top tier, but it can still be produced in a way that has a punch to it. And in this case, it was bloody creepy and playing it over the top was actually appropriate for that play. Right. I think it also in part because... It did push boundaries. They did get pushback from the repossession and from Blood Countess and a couple of others where they received complaints and that there were some stations. And I think this mostly referred to not CBC broadcast outlets, but independent stations that were in regions that CBC didn't get to. So sort of affiliate, affiliate stations, stations that would run it. That's the story sure. I've heard. But I imagine any of that real information is in their archives, which is not going to be accessible. But that's been the story was that they had right. complaints. And when I interviewed Susan Rubish, who was the head of CBC Radio Drama, who, who greenlighted Nightfall when Bill Howe brought the idea to her, she told me that she confirmed that they had a lot of concerns about the repossession. And she had said... You know, their one attempt at a two-parter with the Blood Countess, she said, yeah, we didn't need to do that again. I mean, I think if your show's a half-hour anthology and out of 100 episodes, you have one two-parter, that one's going to stand out. I think the fact that Where Do We Go From Here was my first episode, mm. and I was aware of a suspense episode, I think, that had a very similar storyline. And I thought, okay, Nightfall did it better. <laughs> <laughs> 
think for me, it's like this is when you're listening to old time shows like Inner Sanctum and Lights Out, the Lights Out stands out in its own way. Arch Obler had a way of writing people, ordinary, common, everyday people into situations that are completely, you know, just completely different from anything they've ever experienced. He, right. he had that knack as well. And I think Bill Howell's vision of rock and roll radio drama was the idea of like making it less highbrow, which had been the problem, as I understand it, prior to Susan Rubish coming in. Susan Rubish was an actress. She was involved in creating the Young People's Theater of Toronto, probably right. more famously known as the wife of Jan Rubish, who yes. was in uh, Witness. He was the, the Amish leader, I think, in Witness. Right. But they brought her in to revamp the whole thing. And of course, the story that I imagine Bill probably talked about it was she brought Hyman Brown up from New York, who was still producing CBS Radio Mystery Theater. It was in its last couple of years at that point to run yeah. workshops. And the story I've heard is that the producers basically took what they agreed with of his philosophy and then just did the rest their own way. You know, I've talked to people who don't like the style. I've talked to people who are just not rapidly anti-nightfall, but they just, well, the phrase I would use is they just don't get it. Right. But I've been very fond of shows that use natural language, conversational language. I was involved in a show in the mid-2000s, from, from like 2006 to 2012, called Second Shift. Yes, great show. Yep. That's one of the earlier radio dramas of the modern age, too. Yep. I loved being involved in that show. I was their first villain, and I just loved how they worked it because the writers, the, the actors, had a lot of input. We would read a script for the first time, and everybody had input. And mm -hmm. it was really thrilling to like suggest, I don't remember how familiar you, you are with the characters, but I know that my character, Porek, had a lot to do with the character of Archon not being able to go to the Academy, uh, the Magic Academy, because oh, okay. because right. because she was needed as the, the the Legion spy. And I said to them somewhere toward the end of that run of the show was that I said to the writers, I would really love it if there would be a scene between Archon and Porik where he admits to her that she actually did incredibly well on her entrance exams and was more talented than she had any idea that she was. But because of the needs of, of the Legion, she was not allowed to progress and he apologized to her for that. Right. And Julia Lunetta, who played Archon, just she, like Becky Davis, uh, who played Shauna, were so easy to act against. And again, I like I love we would actually role play, like act out sequences is if they were on stage or in front of a camera. And it really helped how we sure. did delivery and how we interacted with each other. And I mean, I have no idea how sessions actually went under Nightfall, but I remember talking to Earl Toppings, who was a script editor for part of the first season. And he told me, like, he sent me a letter saying, okay, some of my, you know, here's some off the top of my head memories of Nightfall. He says, one of the most annoying things about Bill Howell was that he would say, don't worry about it. We'll fix it in post. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, okay, uh, you know, that actually sounds like me. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I guess, I mean, part of it for me is hearing all the inside stories and exploring the show from the other direction it reminds me of how human everyone is and that people who aren't limited to a certain style of writing, I think tend to flow naturally towards natural dialogue. 
If you listen to other shows, especially the uh, the Mystery Project shows like Peggy Delaney, Midnight Cab, that the dialogue is so natural. It just sounds like two friends talking to each other. You know, there's absolutely times for scenery chewing. And different shows for that, too. Like, you can get shows that are period pieces that they allow them to elevate the language in ways that you wouldn't be hearing Correct. as well. Yeah, that's very sure. true. To condense my reply to your question is it's hard to say. I think part of it has to do with the production philosophy, Bill Howell's rock and roll radio drama philosophy of modernizing it. And I first, when I first heard that phrase, I thought they were referring to the music because Bill Howell found some really amazing pieces of music. Kevin Hartnell has this thing where he's been occasionally goes out searching for stock music collections and has found a few of the cuts that have been used in the show. But really what they meant by rock and roll radio drama was taking an approach of, yeah, man, you know, we're going to cut an album, dude, kind of not serious, not taking themselves terribly seriously, except as the job requires. Sure. Like very contemporary. Like I wanted to use that word before. Yes, yes. And I think, you know, connecting with that generation as opposed to trying to connect with a generation that would consider them to be more like plays. So. They were almost movies. They're audio movies more than their audio plays in that respect. Yes, yes. Audio movies is a phrase I had used in the past. I'm sure you're familiar with Lux Radio Theater. Of course. And, yeah. you know, early on they did novels and stuff, but when they started doing film scripts, that's when they really took off. And my theater troupe, one of the last plays that I pushed for was an adaptation of The Day the Earth Stood Still based on the, at least on the framework from Lux Radio Theater. But the writer, the adapter, took a lot of stuff from the movie, in part because like Klaatu's closing speech, which is supposed to be so intense and actually disturbing, was softened mm -hmm. for the Lux version because we were much more into the anti-communism thing. So the, right. my friend Michael McAfee, who was editing that script, put the original movie speech back in. <laughs> but I love the idea of doing films and trying to recapture that. The very last project I was involved in uh, was an adaptation that I did of Them. Oh, interesting. Yes. Yes, it was so much fun to do it. And just, I don't know, I just really enjoyed doing the script and trying to figure out ways to do things that wouldn't have worked from the movie in radio form and stuff. And I, and I agree with you. I think there's several stories. Actually, The Cruel Husband comes to mind was of if someone were ever to do a TV show version of Nightfall, I could easily see that one being done in, mm -hmm. you know, as a television setting. And I've always had the idea that that would be a cool idea, not that it would ever happen, but especially in the different time frames, you would have to rewrite Welcome to mm -hmm. Homerville to make it work today. Yes. Because it was sure. iconic to the CB radio craze. Although it'd be fun as an audio drama. After I listened to Welcome to Homerville, I thought I could do a retro radio drama using CB radios because it's such a great mechanism yep. in the audio drama world. Why didn't I think of this before? It was so good. I was thinking uh, television-wise, maybe the closest to be, and, and not for quality, but for tone, Tales of the Dark Side yeah. is, is kind of like the closest <laughs> anthology that I would imagine is to what they came up with Nightfall. It's funny you mention that because... The entire inspiration for Mask of Inanna came from the episode Distant Signals of that series. <laughs> I own the series. Do you too, know which one so. I'm talking about? Yeah, yep. yeah, I do. Yeah, that's awesome. Yep. 
<laughs> it, it's so funny these coincidences we you know we connect with i even had alicia go and find that episode online somewhere mm. so she could <laughs> and she actually wrote it into the show she actually oh, wow. wrote it into the second episode where the park ranger on the island you know she says that david lewis who brought leonard allen to the island is not going to tell him so she will was right. that the radio station within the lighthouse was a gift to leonard so he could finish airing the last seven episodes of his show she talked about that. She's like, do you remember this show? And he did, you know, because Leonard Allen did continue to work in Hollywood after Dark was canceled. And when I read the script, I admit I cried. I was just like, oh, my God, Alicia <laughs> just captures everything. She gets it. Right. You know, but we were talking back about Homerville. I did have a brief exchange with Alan Gutman, but each time I kind of asked him about whether we could perform it, I'd, I'd not hear back. So I'm not sure right. what the deal is there. It, it's also uh, Guy Babineau who wrote the adaptation of The Screaming Skull. I wanted to do that one so badly. Sure. And the only thing he said to me was he was very, he was not happy with the way he felt he was treated. I've actually had several writers say that to me. And so I gave up asking him years ago because he wouldn't respond. And I was like, we'd be happy to pay you. Right. <laughs> I, I was going to say we go back to Welcome to Homerville. Since I you know, didn't get a chance to do that, we did a series of shows called The Big Broadcast Of. And it would be like we, the first one we did was The Big Broadcast of October 30th, 1938, which we did you know, a Boston-based version of War of the Worlds. Nice. Where the North End mobsters and what's left of the National Guard get together with an MIT scientist to defeat the Martians in Boston. And we <laughs> opened it with a mock show within a show, Jack Benny kind of thing that a friend of mine had created. And we actually publicized it as a lost Boston wow, <laughs> radio show. Perfect. And people actually believed us. <laughs> but the next year, we did another episode of the Frank Cyrano By Far Hour is what it was called. It was By Far Coffee right. Syrup because coffee syrup is a real New England thing. Mm. And our guest star on that show was Boris Carlin. <laughs> who happened to be in town doing a production wow. of uh, Arsenic and Old Lace. So we had an excuse to have him on the show. But we followed up with a show, which is we had been using the concept of since the beginning, called uh, Tomes of Terror, who originally was on our smaller productions, was hosted by the librarian. And she would introduce each play and so forth, including the Nightfall ones we did. This time around, we made it part of the big broadcast show. And this particular story was set in 1946. So I talked to Alicia and she basically did her own adaptation of, it was kind of like her own adaptation of Welcome to Homerville, which was an adaptation of the Siren story, which was part of Ulysses. So she ended up coming up with the idea of having a barge on the Missouri River that carries munitions from the production facilities in Oklahoma and Kansas down to the Gulf of Mexico to New Orleans to be distributed mm -hmm. to the Navy. So right. in that instance, it was voices coming across the ship's radio. Wow. And it, it was much more connected to the Odysseus legend with crew sure. members, you know, jumping off the, the ship and everything. And it was so I so I did get to do it. <laughs> and unfortunately, we're running out of time. We, yes. we're, we've already hit an hour and I'm just I'm entranced but with I, this. Can, have, will you come back and we can talk more specifically about the stuff that you've done? We can do an entire hour <laughs> on more of the productions that you put together, because I feel like we've kind of just scratch the surface. I'd be happy to. And I'm sure that I can arrange to get, you know, snippets or if you want to use clips and stuff like that, that's fine. But and that I, would be wonderful. I'm happy to talk about, you know, anything. Nightfall, especially. I haven't had a chance to talk about Nightfall this much in years. So 
<laughs> Any last words you want to say about Nightfall before we end off? I guess that's the most important thing to to take away here. How does it make you feel thinking about this show? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's not important. But for a person to have an inspiration, to have something that reaches them for some reason or another, I love the idea of having a connection to something. You know, I started working on this thing when the show was heading to its 25th anniversary. And to see that, you know, there is a flourishing Facebook group and I'm still seeing people on various uh, blogs and stuff talking about Nightfall to, to think that it is still going. And again, my story about Chris Wiggins just really loved being a part of continuing interest in the series and being involved in ways that keep people listening to the show. Neil Marsh, thank you for making me a part of this <laughs> continuum because I'm absolutely a fan, not only of Nightfall, but of your work too. So thank you so much. And I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. And I appreciate you doing this because I'm glad somebody picked up the torch to do something to celebrate this show. Have a great night. You too. Now, you seem to me to be a connoisseur of the best of radio drama. In which case, make sure you're subscribed to the Monday Matinee feed. There we have our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic and live radio drama. So, yeah, either the main mutual audio network feed for all types and genres of audio drama or the Monday Matinee. And we'll see you there. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.